This is John Stepling, and this is Aesthetic Resistance Podcast number 99. Uh, with me in Toronto, Corey Morningstar. Hey, good morning. Uh, in New York, Long Island, Hiroyuki Hamada. Hello. Uh, in Japan, uh, Johan Edible. Good, good evening. And uh, from India, Varun Mathur. Hi, Varun. Hello. Uh, so next time will be podcast number 100. <clears throat> and I think we'll have mm. a couple guests on that one. Uh, Dennis Riches, I think, is going to make it. Uh, so there's a lot of things to talk about. We're trying to do these every two weeks now. And it's amazing. Uh, I I keep notes about topics I want to discuss, and it it ends up being several pages of notes. It's crazy. Uh, but but uh, we will put this up on SoundCloud as well as the Substack for Aesthetic Resistance. It will be available through my Substack. Um, page Stepling's Substack, um, and probably um, <clears throat> available linked on Johan's Substack as well. Uh, but the point is that uh, I want to jump in on a couple of things that all seem kind of related. Uh, the Tucker Carlson interview with with Putin, which was relatively innocuous ultimately but but not uninteresting and and putin's very articulate and can talk um unscripted for a couple of hours uh really effectively but if you go to the guardian or to slate or um cnn has an op-ed about it the attacks on that interview are extraordinary um uh, you know, calling Putin a habitual liar, a serial fantasist, that it was vile and disgusting, as one page put it. And yet, uh, if, if you look at uh, the South African case against Israel for genocide, especially under the incitement to genocide, which wasn't difficult to prove, there are endless quotes from political leaders in Israel, especially the, the rabbis and representatives from the settler parties. And I will read you a few um, right now if I get my reading glasses on here. Um, these are just a few things, I mean, almost randomly selected. This is um, <laughs> Rabbi Ovida Yosef, the spiritual leader of the Shas party, which was a part of Netanyahu's coalition government 2009 to 2012. He said, Goyim, non-Jews, were born to serve us. Without that, they have no place in the world, only to serve the people of Israel. Why are Gentiles needed? They will work, they will plow, they will reap. We will sit 
like an effendi and eat. With Gentiles, it will be like any person. They need to die, but God will give them longevity. Why? Imagine that one's donkey would die. They'd lose money. This is the servant. That's why he gets long life, to work well and serve the Jews. Uh, Moshe Fagan, current deputy speaker of the Knesset, said, quote, you can't teach a monkey to speak and you can't teach an Arab to be democratic. You are dealing with a culture of thieves and robbers. Muhammad, their prophet, was a robber and a killer and a liar. The Arab destroys everything he touches. Uh, Rabbi Eli Ben-Dahin, the Jew has a much higher soul than a Gentile, even if he's gay. Uh, rabbi Dov Lior, chief rabbi of the settlements in Hebron, quote, Gentile sperm leads to barbaric offspring, close quote. Eilat uh, Shaked, minister of justice, quote, they should go as should the physical homes in which they raised the snakes. Otherwise, more little snakes will be raised there. She was talking about killing the mothers and children uh, who were Palestinians. So um, I haven't read a single word about any of these comments. I, have a, I could recite more for the next 30 minutes. This is why the incitement to genocide case was uh, was so easy to prove and so compelling. But in Western media, there's not a single word about any of this. Not a single word. But Putin is vile and disgusting. Those kind of comments apparently are not vile and disgusting. So um, <laughs> there you have it. There's um, a very interesting article that Thierry Maison wrote, um, and I'm I'm always a little uh, hold on here now. I have to find it. Where is it? Um, it's always a little difficult to read things uh, in these podcasts, but um, I will link it on SoundCloud. Uh, the conference for the victory of Israel, uh, Thierry Maison, uh, and and. I'm not going to read it. Like it's, it's so hard to read things, and you kind of have to read the whole piece. But it goes into the history of the Stern Gang and the Ergun back to 1922, and especially this head rabbi um, who got the huge standing ovation, Uzi Sharboff, uh, who who was sentenced to life imprisonment in uh, 1984 for terrorist attacks against Palestinians, but uh, was quietly uh, released in 1991 by um, Shamir, Yitzhak Shamir, who was then the prime minister, I believe. Uh, so, so the point is that um, there's an extraordinarily long history of extreme violence and ethnic cleansing in Zionism. And Hannah Arendt, 
Albert Einstein and other Jewish intellectuals in the 20s wrote a letter published in the New York Times warning about the Stern Gang and the Ergun and the Zionist terrorists, that they were a danger and they were behaving exactly as the Nazis had behaved to the Jews. Um, this stuff has gone down the memory hole, though. There is, there is nothing about it today. You have, to, you have to search a bit. So I find this stuff fascinating, predictable, I mean, we knew this would be the response to the Putin interview. And I mean, we're talking about Tucker Carlson, you know, um, who's who's not exactly um, Che Guevara, uh, it, you know, and and uh, and and yet th this is this is the second topic I want to seamlessly segue into. Um, and that is what I continue to see, and I've said this before, and what I continue to see on social media is this, um, the only web pages and people that I see posting support for the farmers' protests in Europe, and they've won, by the way. Um, <laughs> France has caved in, the Netherlands, um, they're rolling back the taxes and all the, all the, um, the stuff that was going to bankrupt the farmers. Uh, the only people supporting it are these far right people like Peter Sweden um, and and Jim Ferguson. I mean, all these right wing people, but they're dead spot on correct about this. They also have supported the Palestinians wholeheartedly. Uh, and, and I don't see it from anywhere else. The problem is that these same voices then say the farmers are fighting against the encroachment of the new communism, the new communist governments in Belgium and Holland and Paris. And, you know, and I always try to make a comment about it. But, but there is a, you know, there is a, the anti-communism that has existed and grown incrementally since 1945, really since 1918, um, has never been as, as indelible and, and um, embedded in discourse as it is today. I, it, it's just remarkable. And there's utter confusion about what communism means you try to talk to people and, and ask, why does the U.S. government so fear communism? Why do they continue to base foreign policy on measures to stop any nascent socialist or communist movement forming anywhere in the world? Why do they do that? Uh, because they don't do it against anybody else. And you, you're just met with blank stares. So that's a topic that is that is that is worth exploring a little bit you know you can chalk it up to to the the collapse of public education i suppose that that people just learn nothing anymore and know nothing and know no history uh, but they all tuned into the super bowl to see taylor swift's halftime yeah. show um you know, three hours plus, I think I put this in my blog post, three hour plus Super Bowl telecast contained 12 minutes of football. What? Uh, 
Yeah. No way. Way. <laughs> oh my um, God. Johan. Uh, yeah, that's his, his uh, speech, let's say 12 minutes. Get, get back to that maybe. But yeah, the, the quotes you gave in the beginning, they're, they're like way worse than I imagined. It's astonishing that the language they're using. So I'm thinking about how how Israel sort of very paradoxically became this this manifestation, this expression of 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 a distilled white supremacy, this this sort of vehicle for the repressed dream of 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 the eugenics project, you know, whose whose roots are American, whose key roots are found in the the well, the greater colonial project, but also the myth the narrative of, of manifest destiny and the the eradication of the indigenous peoples and all of that but somehow it seems to me like that the israel is, is kind of the the last bastion this is last vestige of the western myth of of progress on the supremacist framework this notion of the, the chosen superior society that's to, to supposed to lead lead mankind towards them towards the stars you know and, and what happens when this project ends what happens when this project collapses in terms of our our common sort of worldview our mythological framework i i think it's the the end of this this colonial project, I think, will have profound implications for the way we, we see ourselves and the world. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> no, I think I think that uh, there's a lot of links we can post. And again, people who were watching the video of this podcast, if you go to Aesthetic Resistance on SoundCloud, um, it's much easier to post links there. There, there will be tons of them. Miko Pellet has been absolutely heroic uh, lately because he just gets angrier and angrier and and you, this palpable exasperation he feels and and um, and you know the the images coming out of Gaza now could not be more horrifying. I mean, just it's unbearable. I can only take a very small amount of this stuff there were snipers that shot a mother and little girl dead in the middle of the road and they weren't quite dead and the mother was next to her dying child as she was dying and i thought that's the last thing she will see in this life is her child expiring next to her who does that what kind of people they aren't a threat of a middle-aged woman and her young daughter what you know and and the endless videos the idf posts on tiktok and instagram endless endless little amateur dance numbers and one of them eating big macs and laughing about shooting palestinians and um other ones of idf soldiers um tearing apart a palestinian home and holding up women's underwear and laughing about i mean it's so depraved it's so sick it's such absolute moral bankruptcy that you wonder who is it that supports this and yet 
if the U.S. government is full of rabid supporters of Israel, um, that mentally ill guy that was elected who walks around in his Bermuda shorts, whatever his name is, um, he is retarded. But he's constantly um, giving speeches. The guy who is actually wears his Israeli IDF uniform into the U.S. Senate uh, uh, and talks about that the death of Palestinian children doesn't bother him. I, you know, how will this society be yeah. looked at in a hundred years? People will wonder how was this possible that 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 there there was this moral vacuum that was so profound and and um, yeah. it's it's extraordinary anyway, but there will be lots of links to this stuff. And and uh, it it has been ongoing, and uh, the 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 other thing worth noting amidst all of this is yeah, what is the the Israel can't really survive, and and Netanyahu will do anything to stay in power because as soon as he's out of power, he goes to jail probably. Uh, he will be in court on day one, uh, so he he will do anything to placate these far right parties, and they are becoming more hysterical, more aggressive, more extreme, more genocidal, uh, and and uh, it, it it simply defies um, it it defies rational understanding at this point. Anyway. The other little piece of news I will throw out there, there was a good piece in Paul Steigen's um, collection of articles today on his webpage about lab-grown meat. Mm. And um, Holland, Israel, and Singapore are big players in fake meat. But the biggest, of course, is the United States, in particular California. This is the epicenter of uh, the lab-grown meat, Frankenfood, and uh, the the takeaway, among many other things, is that this uh, billions of dollars have been invested in lab-grown meat. It's a huge market, uh, and the big players uh, in the U.S. Uh, have are are worth several, you know. 150 million dollars, 500 million dollars. I mean, they're big companies, and uh, and they are pushing it to be used in restaurants, especially fast food places, uh, with minimal labeling and so forth. But the other takeaway from that is that it's decidedly ungreen. I mean, the 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 technology to grow this stuff from stem cells and the you know shoulders of dead chickens or whatever it is uh is costly and uh in terms of energy inefficient and expensive it's nowhere near um profitable at this point unless they really can convince like U.S. schools to, you know, serve it at lunch and stuff like that, uh, which they are a ways from doing. But there's something disturbing about the fact that 
it's neither green nor healthy. And mm. uh, uh, whatever green even means anymore, and I, I don't any longer know what it means, but, but so much of the left is still uh, uh, absolutely attached to the climate discourse and uh, they buy into this stuff. The left, uh, or a lot of the left, pseudo-left, liberal left, bourgeois left, um, are, are support this. They're wholeheartedly in favor of it. Um, Hiroyuki. Uh, <clears throat> I, I think it, it, um, maybe it, it should be noted that the, uh, um, when the uh, empire uses uh, those proxy forces to do uh, the job of uh, colonizing and uh, functioning as a military base, um, they need to be um, a separate entity um, that's doing the imperial work in the name of whatever, in this case, uh, Israel, uh, it's a religion, it's uh, nature of uh, their own colonizing. So th they do function as... Uh, um, very good partner in this imperial uh, um, uh, framework. So they need to be uh, assertive about themselves as we are vicious people who are doing this, um, you know, in order to uh, separate the bigger picture of um, the U.S. empire using the region um, uh, controlled by um, U.S.-backed Israel. I mean, all the money is coming from the U.S., uh, all the political support and uh, the military support, um, logistical support. The, the, I mean, it's it's all in there. If, if they took it away, you know, Israel isn't going to be surviving. So um, I, I think it, it, it does make sense. The, the only problem is that there's an expiration date for something like that, you know, at some point the U.S. is gonna um, say that uh, Israel, this country, uh, is not good, <laughs> and we're well, gonna you know, we're gonna take care of it. You know, we're we're gonna be the the moral authority. Uh, we're gonna solve the solve this religious, you know, deep deeply rooted historical conflict. And uh, you know all, all that. You know it's it's always like that. You know uh, if you look at the uh, what happened to Nazi Germany, you know they are the ones who supported Nazi Germany, and uh, you know in order to uh, um, um, a, a crash uh, Soviet Union, and um, so you know larger yeah. scheme of matter. You know it's it's the the. Uh, um, the, the uh, uh, the there is a there is a political crisis we said this last time or i said it last time the political crisis in the west and and it, it it you see biden is now getting thrown under the bus there's sort of everybody's admitting he's senile uh and and his recent appearances are painful you know he can't he doesn't know where he is he's he's steeply in decline now and and so Kamala Harris is being trotted out, trying to look presidential, but nobody likes her. 
something is going on. The other shoe will drop on that. Biden will step down. Kamala will serve as president for a few months and, and Michelle Obama or whoever, Blinken or somebody will run at the 11th hour against Donald Trump. But, but the problem is the West, I, you know, look at the, 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 the Houthi, uh, rebels and Sarula. Uh, Britain was to send two aircraft carriers to, to the Red Sea. Neither one was functional. They couldn't leave port. Both ships broke down. The U.S. had a ship that had to return to the U.S. because it was malfunctioning. The empire is, is fucked. It's just not prepared to fight multiple wars anywhere. And they saber rattle now in Taiwan. Uh, they are sending soldiers to that little tiny island off the coast of China. I mean, it's ridiculous. Uh, they continue to bomb Yemen, bomb the dirt, you know, the sands of Yemen. They're not doing anything because they have no intelligence and the military is uh, woefully uh, inadequate at this point. Troop levels are, as we said last time, at, at historic lows. So the whole thing is, the whole thing is, is reaching some kind of crescendo. Uh, and it's, it's yeah. a little frightening to imagine what that comes next. Anyway, Johan. Yeah. Uh, you, you said something, <clears throat> something about the, the judgment of history earlier. And I, I got to think, Somebody said that when when we're actually living in in a fully postmodern culture, we're not going to be able to say so anymore. We're not going to be able to identify that fact. And I think we are increasingly living in the, this totally relativist postmodern culture, which has no no stable metaphysical or, or moral framework. Uh, and you know, such so, so thing as the notion of atrocity, which is almost, it's they have been almost entirely emptied because the moral absolutes that that such concepts rely on ha have been substituted for for these empty notions of values and such. And, and this vacuum is, it, it's this vacuum allows the, this kind of genocide to take place under. The same sort of entertainment framework, same entertainment auspices as, as a reality show. And, yeah. you know, this, this lack of, of rational moral certitude is it's also at the same time, it's, it's what watered down the left. It's what, what watered down the entire, entire progressivist political framework because, you know, it's, it's, the, the, it it removed the metaphysical and and rational and and moral framework upon which these these principles built and upon which the goals towards the future could be structured, and what we have today sort of ultimately mirrors the logic of, of television advertising. Now, my my point is that the political problems we see today ultimately I think they're metaphysical and moral, and and that's where the 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 discussion on how to move forward must ultimately lie. Um, yeah, I'm, 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 um, I would agree with that. And in that light, it's kind of interesting when you listen to, to Putin's interview, 
uh, you know, I understand. I mean, there's going to be a very deep cognitive dissonance in the American public, certainly. Uh, and, and it's intensified because of this confusion about what is communism, what is fascism, what, I, and, and the only voices who, as I said before, who are genuinely skeptical or nearly the only voices are people on the far right who are, are woefully ignorant of, of historical precedent and, and the, the nature of how we got where we are. Uh, and and so many people that I have supported because they are pro-Palestinian, they were COVID skeptics, they were anti-NATO, they remain anti-NATO. But but several of the ones I'm thinking of are are notably anti-communist. And and we should go back and revisit Parenti's article, Michael Parenti's article um, on left anti-communism because it's it's more pertinent than ever i think um corey i'm just what about the, what about that um nut job what's his name the president of argentina oh my god okay so the world economic forum you saw klaus schwab op with open arms have him come up on stage and he spoke at, you know quite for quite a long time um I thought, oh, is this the end then? Is this now where we can finally stop saying that the World Economic Forum are communists? Um, <laughs> I mean, that was clearly an anti-communist, um, what, whatever you want to call it, rant that he went on. That guy is nuts. That guy is crazy. Yeah. Um, anyway, the there's... Level, right? His... Yeah, and, and and Schwab, you know, welcomed him right up there to talk at length for a long time. That was to me, really stunning, you know, that such a nut job would be given the stage like that. That guy's clearly insane. I mean, dangerously yeah, yeah. so. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's another TV personality. He he was the mm. Zelensky of Argentina, right? The, the I had a thing in my blog post, and I should have expanded on it more. The, the why comedy... Uh, and news merge, you know, the John Stewart Colbert thing, uh, and there's any number of them, uh, where these late night talk shows hosted by comedians became a source of news for kind of the, the white bourgeoisie, the educated white bourgeoisie. They love John Stewart. They love any of those guys. And... Uh, and it's it's because there's something and so and that Zelensky was a comedian and the Argentinian guy Mile is that how you pronounce it uh, was a comedian on Argentine TV uh, this kind of weird postmodern populism or something and but it but it has to do with that comedy is reassuring. Comedy is no longer, you know, you know, a hundred years ago, Charlie Chaplin was included the audience with him from his point of view that 
that or Buster Keaton or all the way to, you know, um, Burns and Allen and people in the 50s, ex-Vaudevillians, there was an empathy uh, elicited because it was, look at me, I'm such a schnook and you're probably a schnook too and we fail, but, you know, so we continue on. Uh, and it was, there was a subtext of tragedy to many of those guys. Uh, that's all gone. And now they're, the, the comedy is something else. It's condescending and patronizing and smug. And it's not inclusive in the same way. It's I am hipper than you, but I might let you hang out with me for a little while anyway. Uh, it, it's an entirely different calculus. Mm. And and the new smug condescending comedian though still provides this this sort of soft landing mm, for the mm. audience. They're non-threatening. They're absolutely non-threatening, and consequently, they have become great political voices. They are the new like political commentators, uh, and they serve the state. They serve the empire. Yeah. That that's their job almost. Uh, Colbert was it Colbert? Uh, yeah. was was the most enthusiastic vaccine uh, emissary that that you know Pfizer and Johnson and Johnson could ever find. I, that's what he did. Uh, and they make fun of dissent. Bill Maher is another one. Mm. Uh, rabidly pro-Zionist. Uh, makes fun of anybody who offers dissent or who is genuinely leftist. And so it's, I don't know, there's a, there's a whole kind of theoretical thing there that is worth unpacking at a certain point. It's very interesting. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, Hiroyuki? Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's uh, totally, uh, I think, related matter in, in terms of uh, uh, when we talk about the uh, uh, total destruction of the uh, uh, political institution, uh, it used to function as uh, uh, an establishment that put people in uh, their places. You have uh, two corporate parties uh, that are funded by the same people. They are uh, coming up with the uh, policies, narratives, and all that. But if other social institutions are doing their job of framing and uh, narrative constructing and uh, um, coming up with the atmosphere that's um, uh, productive to the uh, capitalist class. Um, they don't rely on the uh, political institution that functions for them. We have other social institutions, capitalist social institutions functioning for them. So I think the the whole landscape of the society is shifting to a uh, uh, different mode of uh, um, domesticating that's uh, guided by all the social institutions we have, you know? So they don't really have to depend on a political institution. And that's also related to the, uh, the <coughs> I'm sorry, the fact that the, uh, um, we have a uh, certain set of uh, ideologies uh, that are only acceptable. We, we're not talking about uh, um, 
other anything other than capitalism you know so yeah. um, no, there, there's something i also wanted because you had said something before about aesthetics and i want to sort of circle back to that at a at a certain point but um uh because that's that's part of this too and and uh another link that i will provide is dave zirin's piece in uh the nation of all places uh about the super bowl and and that israel chose of course on super sunday to launch an attack on um rafa um predictably because that's that's what they always do uh varun hey <laughs> obviously yeah, I, I was that. i was just thinking about uh, the idea of comedy and the, the television spectacle in times of war and genocide in the sense there there is an automated system i think of reaction in the public in general when yeah. you witness there that's stimulus right but if we do live in as johan was expounding before in this kind of a uh, very frivolous postmodern time then it's important for the establishment to negotiate and manage the reactions of the public and i think that's why serious issues get put onto really flaky shows like these talk shows so that there is a vent and so then it doesn't have to be talked about anymore then it doesn't have to be delved into anymore so you have a sort of an authority figure that represents the establishment yeah that is now making fun of the supposed villain that you're supposed to hate the audience is going to laugh it off is going to be half an hour 40 minutes on tv and it's done so yeah. what what essentially has happened is that the erasure of a longer timeline in in the individual's mind itself is already short circuited but also that the group itself will feel like there is no more need to talk about it because somebody yeah. has already spoken about it it's done yeah. and so yeah. i think it's this kind of mechanism that's functioning which is why people are like you have blank faces when you bring these subjects up in everyday situations you know yeah so yeah. that's what i was thinking I, because it it becomes this kind of vent if you laugh it off you don't have to be serious it doesn't have to be another more serious one more serious thing on top of your already difficult life that you have to discuss mm. it's in that yeah. sort of category i think the nature of laughter has changed as well i think people laugh differently than they did 60 years ago that's a whole separate topic but, but laughter feels yeah. nervous and and um uh hysterical now it's not yeah. there's nothing funny i never laugh i mm. never watch comedy I never laugh. I can't watch comedy because it makes me acutely uncomfortable. I don't laugh and I'm the only one not laughing and and it it makes me deeply uncomfortable. I so I just don't watch it. Ergo, I never laugh either. Um Johan. <laughs> I I think you're you're getting at some really really important issues here and there's so much to unearth around the issue of comedy that goes to the heart of a of theater of relations of religion of ritual and all that stuff but, but I, I just had a, a few reflections here and also you know Ray, reagan was an actor for for one just to, just to, to mention that but in in a sense i think comedy sort of, of reproduces and reinforces the world view 
And in a sense, I think it's kind of the last tool for 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 reinforcing the myth. This has a, it has an almost religious function, like a, like a the role of ritual that that nothing, almost nothing anymore retains. And comedy through laughter, uh, it gives this imp this this uh, impression of the connection through through humor, and this this sort of snarky narcissistic comedic style you mention it. it Emphasize this, I think, as Varun was, was talking about the perception that the empire, that the power structure have uh, things under control. And it gives you a way to, to vicariously participate in that power and to vent some of your anxiety and, and your repressed desires through, through laughter. So there's, there's this fascist hint to this new flavor of comedy you're talking about, I think, which I think is yes, absolutely. incredibly interesting. Especially when it targets dissent in the way that Bill Maher would will do. So, so I mean, how how the how the fuck could could comedy and stand up comedy get dissociated from the counterculture like this and so quickly? What what why what do you think happened there? You know, it's a yeah. There's so much to talk about with that. There was a there was a pivotal moment, I think, in comedy that was probably centered around Lenny Bruce. And Lenny was really funny when he started. He was a more traditional comic. And as his drug addiction grew and his political awareness grew, he became less and less funny. By the end, he was standing on stage. There's YouTube recordings, not videos, of Lenny's late routines. And he's just reading court transcripts for a couple of hours, you know, he's paid re and commenting on judges and lawyers and the, the, the judicial system. It was nothing to do with comedy anymore, except that Lenny was a comedian. Uh, and even the early Mort Saul, who became kind of oddly reactionary, but at a certain point wasn't. Uh, that was, that was sort of like, if we look at jazz, that was, Lenny was Coltrane, you know, or Ornette Coleman. Lenny was Ornette Coleman. And everything post Ornette and post Lenny became something else. It, it, it was that strain of comedy was played out and then it was replaced by these, these court stenographers you know, John Stewart and Bill Maher and, and Colbert. And um, what's the other guy, that other horrible British? Oh, he's so disgusting. I can't Oliver. What's his name? What's his oh. name? I think it's an Oliver something. Yeah. Mm. Is that a, yeah. John, John, Oliver. John Oliver, John Oliver. Uh, you yeah. know, um, Oliver, who did devoted a whole routine to making fun of Maduro and Venezuela and the Bolivarian Revolution. I he mean, overtly fascistic commentary. Uh, but this, but you know, I, I, I had a job once on as a staff writer on a comedy show. Once they never hired me back because I was really not funny, but. Uh, we all determined that at a certain point, people weren't even hearing the jokes. They were hearing the, the structure, the rhythm of the jokes. 
two is tragic, three is comedy. All jokes are predicated. Guy walks into a bar, da, 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 da. second guy walks into a bar, da, 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 da. that's tragedy. Third guy walks into a bar, then, then there's a punchline, that's comedy. And all jokes have this kind of rhythm. And if you, you could deliver, you know, uh, Seinfeld in Albanian and half the audience would not know the difference. They just sit there and laugh because they don't hear it anymore. There's no content to it. Seinfeld was very proud that his show was about nothing. And indeed it was, you know. So, so Seinfeld, also a rabid Zionist, uh, who traveled to Israel and visited the troops. He's the Bob Hope of the IDF. Uh, you know, this is, but there's so much more in this. It, it, it's a very complicated topic and, and is, it's an unnerving one for me because as I say, I don't find anything very funny anymore. And, um, I, you know. Well, also, I, I think it's also this kind of, um, even with the indie comics that I see, even in India now, that, I mean, the comic scene grew quite considerably in the last decade or so. But this pervasive political correctness that has gone into comedy as well, it makes it so dry. There's nothing in it, right? In the sense yeah. that there is no... Uh, you're not allowed to make fun of the establishment anymore. And a lot of comedians in India got arrested. They got into trouble because they were making fun of the establishment and so on and so forth. But there's also yeah. this weird political correctness that has steeped into... Because, I don't know, I mean, I, I, people used to be laughing their heads off at Eddie Murphy in the 80s. And yeah. he was racist and sexist and all kinds of wrong things in comparison. Right? right? Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the only... sterile. There's a couple of Muslim comics, actually, Western Muslim comics, who, who the guy who did the reverse racism bit, if you just Google YouTube reverse racism, you'll find his bit. And it's genius. It's one, it's, that was funny. Yeah. Is, what? That was funny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what they say, in, you know, you tell a joke in New York, people laugh. You tell a joke in Hollywood, they say, hey, that's funny. Um, okay. Anybody else who's Corey, what else do you have? I was just thinking when, when you were talking about, um, the interview with Putin a while ago, I was just thinking how in Canada I notice because I mean, on CBC, I don't have a TV, but the radio, when I listen to it, the news, the news, and it's always introduced with this, you know, propaganda jingle at the beginning, the you know, I'm like, oh, the propaganda's on. Anyway, they never, ever, I can't recall ever hearing his voice. They never, ever have yeah. him saying anything. He's literally like a boogeyman, yeah. right? Putin, Putin, yeah. Putin. You know, I hear all so many people talk about how evil he is. And it's like, oh, how often, you know, do you listen to him? Oh, did you hear the speech? Did you hear whatever he said then? Have you read any books about him? I mean, everyone hates him, but no one actually knows why. No one's even heard his voice before, you know, and that's how the news is here. Um, you were, we were talking a little bit last time about, what was his name, that show, Buckley? Um, remember, we were talking about that show. I don't remember his name. Um, where they would have two guests and they would debate, right? Yeah. 
what was his name? Wasn't it Buckley? Buckley, William F. Buckley, yeah. Yeah, and then he would have, um, what was the other guy's name that I watched on him? Anyway, he'd have his different guests on there. I think he even had Stokely Carmichael one time. He had Stokely, he had Malcolm X. He had Okay, yeah. I mean, now you don't get that. All you get is the one side, the establishment, right? Empire, the state. You, you oh, don't yeah. get the other side at all. And at people all. are okay with that. Like literally, you do not get any, just one side. In America said, my greatest fear about Tucker Carlson's interview with Putin is that it will humanize Putin. <laughs> he said this, like that was a that was a reasonable comment, you know? <laughs> Dehumanizing Putin was the given. That's, yeah, that's <laughs> what we're doing, right? That's what we're supposed to do. Uh, yeah, no, uh, I didn't mean to interrupt you though, but yeah, that- No. It, 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 you should read, the BBC, no, is it BBC, The Guardian, and Slate. Those are the three reviews of the Carlson Putin interview that I read. You should find them and read because it's extraordinary. I, it, 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 this is where we are in with the state of propaganda now, I guess. And and uh, it's very hard and. The interesting thing for me now, though, like in Norway here, uh, which is a huge supporter of the United States, there's something like 12 new bases total being built in the north of Norway and the pristine Arctic will be destroyed. Uh, but, well, the, but the country is overwhelmingly pro-Palestinian. Um, people are horrified, horrified even politicians horrified by, by the images and what is happening and their protests all the time. Uh, it's very interesting. It's as if the Gaza genocide has 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 been a massive misstep in that the, the, the propaganda apparatus in the West doesn't know what to do with it. It's completely ineffective because it's the first time this kind of violence is available on on your smartphone and and the images are recorded there was that picture the other day it got went viral everywhere of the little girl hanging on the wall with her legs shredded off and people trying to palestinians trying to get her down you people can't unsee that stuff yeah. uh, it, it it's so horrifying that it has it is serving to unravel multiple narratives i think mm -hmm from the government. Um, yeah, who, uh, Varun. Yeah, it's not just, I think- you guys it, when your hands go up, right? So yeah. you understand that. Varun. Yeah, no, I think it's also, I mean, now the other problem, other side of that is that, let's say that people who don't live in any context of this genocide are watching and they are also dealing with their own life, their own family, and so on and so forth. So, but if you're continuously bombarded with this, then the automatic reaction, I think, of the public is that the world is a very dangerous place. So it's important to just look after yourself and mm -hmm. shut everything else out. And that mm -hmm. has been getting worse, I think, since the telecast of the first Gulf War, which was 
talked about very highly whether those kind of images are okay or not to be on television and so on and so forth. Those debates happened like all that time ago in the 90s, right? But now you have a very set kind of mood that the world is a dangerous place. It is run by the military establishment and everybody is in debt and you better just look after yourself, right? Okay. So it's kind of impossible then in that sense for people to find common ground, like we were discussing last time, on the last part, I think we were discussing, but in a show of solidarity with farmers, sure, a lot of Europe has gone against the parliaments and has managed to get the taxes cut down and so on and so forth, but that does not result in the stopping of all of the other stuff that the establishment and the empire has managed to actually get so deep into everybody's house it's almost impossible then right like so so you're normalizing that you're normalizing this kind of high stress life and fucking printed meat and gmo food and all of that so now you're supposed to deal with the genocide in israel and gaza where i have i have no personal relations like in the sense i care because it's humanity and but for most people that's not the case right like that's not the case they have bills to pay and so on and so on. so they will watch entertainment and like we were saying before so it gets into this really isolationist place where the world looks completely bleak and all lost right yeah hmm. well i think i i have conversations with people um here in norway the few friends i have in norway that i actually speak to um the, uh, and and they talk to other people and it, different things are related to me. And one of the common concerns for people, whatever, whether they're in their 20s or 40s or 60s, whether they're married or single and whether or not they have children, doesn't matter, that people feel hopeless. Uh, yeah. Their aspirations have been blunted and dulled. They don't see any future that has meaning uh and there is a a kind of generalized blanket malaise that seems to to be in place in society and my impression of the united states is that it's that it's even worse uh yeah. and and consequently this is just my reading uh, uh of social media mostly my sense is that there there is an understandable uh, kind of revanchist nostalgia for the 50s and the 40s and things were better, whether they were really better or not. I think they probably were markedly in many cases. Work life was better and less stressful. People got paid proportionately better and so forth. But there is a there is an embrace of a kind of nostalgic uh, mm. state of dreamy stupor or something in people, and it's reflected in Hollywood. The new shows that come out often are what we used to call in Hollywood blue sky shows. Um, Hawaii mm. Five O was was always the prototype, right? That that they take place in sunny vacation locales and that's what people want b 
because their own lives feel so dystopian and and um, pessimistic, and and it it is it is what people feel, uh, and I think underneath that people are extraordinarily angry. And the farmer protests. I mean, my God, you know, um, the support for the farmers was really surprised me that it was so overwhelming. Um, I did. I saw. I mean, crowds were out supporting all these tractor driving farmers in just about every country in the EU. And, uh, uh, you know, now, yes, a lot of people were praising them for fighting the communist government of the World Economic Forum, but, but still they were supporting the right side. And, and this is, this is, I think you're seeing a kind of cognitive dissonance in a lot of people because, um, they they don't have a schematic explanation, a way to articulate the forces that are, that yeah. are at work here, right? I mean, if you think Klaus mm -hmm. Schwab's a communist, you're going to have trouble figuring out how to feel about anything because yeah, nothing will make any sense. Um, okay, uh, Varun, you're yeah, no, just I I think yeah, it's just a simple point about communism. And the World Economic Forum, there is a difference between what is personal and what is private. I think people really need to understand that aspect of communist thinking, right? And that the bourgeois, the ownership of uh, modes of production and so on and so forth, that's something that I don't think people have got difference between the personal and the private, you know? And that's yeah. the, I think that's just as simple as that. I think people, when, when, when there is this kind of, when they want to abolish the personal, they are still going to hold the private. <laughs> it's, well, they still yeah, own it, I mean, you know, like. Uh, yeah, no, I think that's right. Uh, I think that's right. That's very good. Um, uh, and, and um, you know, you, you try to, exp I think part of the problem is that the idea of class, the one idea of Marx that has been, you know, completely squashed, erased, and forbidden to be raised as a subject is the idea of class. And, and of course, the right wing in the US, you know, um, made that a slogan. Uh, oh, class warfare. Anytime you would raise any kind of discussion about the underclass or poverty or inequality, they go, oh, class warfare. And that was supposed to shut you up. Um, and it did, largely. People saw that as, as this pejorative, you know, put down or something. Oh, you're raising class. Oh, you must be one of those weird communists or something. Um, no, it's, and you know, but it's, but it's, it's very hard to generalize because, you know, we, we started this during COVID at the beginning of COVID, we were talking about the vaccines and the lockdowns and all the damage that was going to do. And we were right. Uh, but, but the left was largely wrong. Christian Ferrandi had that great article and, you know, how did the left get all everything to do with the pandemic so wrong? Uh, and, and that's the problem, uh, in a sense, because I still see a lot of the left utterly uh, 
and these are people often who are self-identify as as socialist communist or so and they're still you know embracing the climate discourse embracing the idea of green solutions and carbon captures and that they're you know it's a dire emergency uh i read a piece it was published by in australia by some leftist group saying we have no time to waste we are on the precipice of absolute global catastrophe because of rising um, uh, temperatures and so forth. And I thought, but it was just the coldest winter in European history almost. It's minus 14 today here, by the way. Um, a long, miserably cold winter, and nobody can explain this, but they keep publishing pictures of maps in red and purple as if there are you know temperatures so extreme that that they are um you know uh, a threat to human life and and this is a lie i mean it's just absolutely not true uh and you can go back somebody published a short thing showing all the all the predictions from the global warming people you know, cities were going to be flooded because of rising sea levels. Uh, you know, we had five years before this happened, 10 years before that happened, 15 years, all of Al Gore's stuff and carries, and none of it happened. Absolutely nothing happened. Uh, it's just maybe getting a little warmer because that's what the earth does periodically, but it is not, there is no threat to life. Um, Johan. Yeah, sure. So I mean, it seems that we've uh, uh, we've we've uh, stumbled on on uh, uncommon uncommon number of concrete suggestions today. I think so. I I think both the, uh, you, Jan, and, and Varun have more more in almost like word for word articulated this need for what I would call a. A framework for uh, for rational, for moral, and for for metaphysical thought. For like, we we need to to reestablish these basic foundations for thinking, so that people can have the tools to make sense of their world on their own. Again, I, I think that's that's going to be crucial for 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 the future and however we we look at things. But also, I I, I also think think that what what incredibly important at this point in time is to reestablish some sort of, of myth or narrative of a meaningful future that's not predicated on progress, on the growth of, of the economy and the increased complexity of technology and all that stuff. So, so we people need to discover a, a view of the future that's positive, but that's, that's not predicated on any of that old stuff. And I think that the apocalyptic narratives we've been fed with during the, this last decade is going to create a, a paradoxical counter movement, a sort of vacuum to be filled with this sort of positive vision somehow. I think that's inevitable. Um, yeah, I think this goes back. I mean, you and I have talked a lot and, and it, you know, it's slow to put this stuff together, but the idea of the people's university is, is still, mm. um, foremost in my mind. And, and I talk to people about this all the time because I, it's what I think is incredibly important. One of the debates I had about communism 
anarchism, uh, all you know, fascism, with this guy who who is I respect and who's done great work. But he he posted stuff that was from sort extraordinarily dubious, very reactionary sources that was like. Ah, see Ho Chi Minh got money from Rockefeller and Rothschild. Ha ha. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. What fucking difference does that make to anything? He liberated his entire country throughout the imperialists. These things, it, 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 it's like, you know, Mao didn't brush his teeth. I remember reading an article about that. One. <laughs> Mao never brushed his teeth. Uh, yeah, but he liberated a third of the population of the planet from feudalism and serfdom and slavery. Doesn't that count, friend? Did he make mistakes? Yes, everybody makes mistakes. I mean, what? Why is why is socialism? And there's always a counter revolution. There's always a profound attack from the West and from Western capital on socialist governance. But but. You know, as and Fidel used to say this, you constantly ask me about the failures of communism, socialism. You never tell me about the successes of capitalism because there are none. And and um, so this guy posted these articles and I thought this is this revisionist Western academic history um, Anthony Sutton being the poster boy for stupid um, histories of, of the USSR in particular. Um, and it's, this is beneath the standard of stuff this guy usually posts. So I thought, so what is it? What is this reflexive, almost knee-jerk anti-communism in people? It's been unconsciously absorbed in some way that is, is um, outside uh, conventional analysis, I think it's a it's a psychoanalytic question. At a certain point, people have have been indoctrinated in a way that has become um, very hard to explain, even because because the idea of power in the hands of the people is a good thing, right? Why? Why are you so terrified of that? Why does that strike you as horrible that you immediately see images of, you know, the last Hollywood production of 1984? You know, that's always what what people associate with with the word. It's it's so it's it's you. It's a really uphill battle. OK, Hiroyuki and then Corey. Well, I was uh, just uh, thinking about what you guys talked about, the comedy and uh, uh... I'm wondering um, uh, about it. I mean, you know, if you if you look at the situation, um, all those things we face could be a great um, uh, topics of comedy. I mean, if you uh, uh, watch uh, what uh, George Carlin said about uh, Middle Eastern conflict, he would say that uh, you know Israeli. Uh, soldiers are commando, and uh, 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 Palestinians are, you know, uh, terrorists, and uh, uh, people laughed about it. And I mean, you know, hilarious. I mean, those, you know, jokes he made were really funny. And uh, and if you look at uh, Jimmy Dore, you know, 
he talked about COVID things and the way he presented were very very funny you know but i yeah. guess by but i guess we have um this fear you know you can't laugh at certain things and you can't laugh at certain things and uh, those are really deeply seated it's it's really um conditioned by um uh, medical institution conditioned by uh uh, educational institution, um, you know, community itself would uh, corner into uh, obeying those things. And those things indicate that we do not have communities that are uh, inherently geared toward uh, people's interests. Uh, mm -hmm. are under the control of um, external uh, forces. We are relating to each other uh, by the imperatives of those things. So like Varun was saying, it is uh, really important that we cultivate real community. Uh, I mean, if we have the real community, we know what's real and what's not real. And then we're gonna start to see what's funny and what's not, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, I, no, so, I think- I, I think, think it, it all kind of connects and uh so uh, comedy is not being funny is is really um, a good indication that we are living in this cage we are totally controlled and uh, uh um but at the same time the situation really is there's a great potential you know it, it, people could make great jokes about what we are dealing with, you know, because uh, the funniest things are coming from the most tragic situations, right? We always, yeah, and and comedy is always based on cruelty and 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 identification with, you know, um, and you can't tell those kind of jokes anymore, right? I mean, fear. Tell, most jokes are racist and misogynistic, and because that's that's. That's the nature of what makes them funny, you know. Right. Become, uh, uh, you know, guy walks into a bar with a parrot on his shoulder. Bartender says, "Hey, where'd you get that?" Parrot says, "Africa. They got millions of them." The first part is black guy walks into a bar with a parrot on his shoulder, but you can't tell that joke, right? Um, uh, you can't even tell. Uh, uh, vaguely, by uh, my uh, my my sign off tonight, I'll tell you my favorite joke. Actually, um, uh, and I heard somebody try to repeat it on TV once, and they cleaned it up, and it wasn't funny, you know. Um, so so that's that's uh, that's also part of just the the this kind of weird woke thing that that continues to be oddly enforced everywhere. Um, you, you, you're not going to even notice it, like if you're connected to, uh, you know, double speak. you know, if you're talking to yeah, each yeah. other uh, in that kind of manner, uh, we don't have uh, shared uh, common sense, humanity. And, uh, you know, because the, the funny things are coming from those things, you know, we stand on the same ground and uh, if something is wrong uh, and if we present it in a way... Uh, Funny, that's really funny, you know, but if we don't connect well, to each other. At, 
in honest ways. You did. <laughs> you can't last. Right, you know. The last comedian that Hollywood tried to give a show to and and turn into was Richard Pryor and turn into a mainstream. You know, he was and funny. Pryor's show lasted half a season and they they took him off the air. I mean, he was quite mad by that time anyway. But I mean, um, you, he just was too outside. He was completely unacceptable to to middle America, even though he was. Um, starring in Hollywood movies at that point. No, it's it's um, you know you <laughs> okay. I'm not anyway. Um, other thoughts from people. Uh, Johan, anyone? Well, I was gonna say I don't even know where this started. This whole thing with the World Economic Forum and the elites being communists. Yeah. Um. I mean, the World Economic Forum is basically a clearinghouse, um, like a secretariat to 200 corporations, the world's most powerful corporations. And that's who they serve. And their job is to create, basically carve out avenues for them to expand their market share, right? And expand, expand their power. And so that's obviously the furthest thing from, um, you know, workers owning the means of production. It's a, it's the expansion and privatization, right? And even now through the Great Reset, that's what we saw. We saw basically these corporations, especially the technocrats and um, the most elite in that elite class taking more power and control of the world's um, natural resources. For example, what's it called? Um, cable, is that right? Cable, the mining company set up by um, Bezos and Gates and Musk, um, all the billionaires. They're right now about to start a project in, where is it, Zambia for copper. They've just discovered copper there, a huge amount. And now they're looking at going into the Congo. So before you had, um, you know, different mining companies, even that, they're going to take control of the mining, right? They're taking control, more control of the food. We see that, right? We've seen that. We've seen Gates now. He owns all, you know, the farmland, I think the most farmland in the United States yeah. and, um, you know, throughout the world, look what's happening in Ukraine, all the private ownership. And so I, I don't really get where that's coming from, um, you know, equating well, this with I, communism yeah, it's the opposite it's because what you just said most people don't even know that much about it they think klaus schwab wants to take away everything they own and you'll be you know you won't own anything you'll be happy oh that must be communism where you didn't get to own you know your own mercedes-benz or something uh i guess it's just that because we're we're not talking about people who are sophisticated um, political thinkers or anything, and and it's just this mem that that got popular. And but I see it all the time. And and the other thing I see all the time, especially lately, has been a very specific attack on Marx. Oh, you know, Marx was a you know a lecherous old man and a liar and a thing. I mean, they just invent things, right? And uh, it it's it it originates somewhere. Some some directive came down to the 
the cybersecurity, I mean, everything's run on algorithms, on, on automatic, you know, the stuff is manufactured and spewed out there. I know that, I mean, my site, whether it's my blog or SoundCloud, I'm inundated with trolls. And I'm sure that 75% of them are uh, just automated. They're not even people. A couple of them I know are people, but I delete all of them every time. But I have to delete stuff almost daily because I'm on a list somewhere, an algorithmic list that triggers these these kind of emails and comments. I, I you know, so it, there's that as well. It's a it's a it's a a universe. The internet is a universe that that. Um, has in which real people and and fictional people uh, have equal standing somehow, and and it becomes increasingly difficult to to know which is which, and this leads us into a big discussion of artificial intelligence and uh, all that implies. But um, you know, Johan and I will do a special podcast on AI. <laughs> Okay. Uh, Johan, speak. Yeah, just uh, maybe a few final reflections I thought might serve as a comment to what you said the last couple of minutes. So I, I was part of a, of a useless discussion group on Facebook a few years ago on politics. It was, it was dismal, it was really bad. But I, I once posed the question uh, to them, what is the purpose of politics? What's the purpose of, of society? And of course, I've got no... No, nobody understood the question, but so since I'm a Thomist, I thought I'd I'd give the Saint Thomas Aquinas the position on this, and his his idea, taken from Aristotle, is that the purposes of of the 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 natural purposes of the human being and and those of society they coincide because their their purpose is is the perfectioning and the flourishing of of the human person. In relation to to others and, and to nature, so so the purpose of of uh, the the political community is to produce a good citizen in in a good society, and I'm gonna quote from a paraphrase for, from Aquinas as well that connects to this, and it asks that what sense does it then make to speak of a good citizen in a bad regime? Uh, one does not need to consider the worst sorts of regimes to see the difficulty inherent in achieving good citizenship. So in any regime that is less than perfect, there always remains the possibility that promoting the interests of the regime and promoting the common good may not be the same. Uh, to be sure, good men are often called to stand up heroically against tyrants, but the full potential of the good citizen will never be realized unless he lives in, in the best of all possible regimes. In other words, only in the best regime or the best form of political order do the good citizen and the good human being coincide. And only the the, the proper political order, therefore, sort of supports the, the moral perfectioning and flourishing of the human being. That, that's sort of the end point. So any, any uh, quick connections to communism here? I'm sorry, what was the last part? Yeah, so, so can, you, can you connect this quickly to, to, to your yeah, view on well, communism? Yeah, well, I mean, the th I try to point out to people that um, 
you know, the people who built the death camps are not the same as the people who liberated the death camps. And that fascism is anti-communism and communism is anti-fascism. And you just have to understand that. That's, that's the basic blueprint. Uh, and and that, that the idea of communism, I mean, that, you know, again, the problem is that that with the Soviet Union and China, uh, Nicaragua, Cuba, wherever socialist governments really took power, uh, they were immediately under attack and uh, they were reactive. And for the Soviet Union, this was a huge, it was a huge problem. I mean, Lenin has wrote about this a lot that, that, you have to constantly be on guard because the forces of reaction are are going don't want the workers don't want the people to be make decisions and if my son lex my eldest of my four sons by a wide margin is a, going to be on here i hope next time um he worked for a year in venezuela and on one of chavez's missions when chavez was first in power and he will say immediately, Venezuela, when I was there, was the most democratic country in the world. Workers decided everything for themselves. What hours they were going to work, who was elected, you know, foreman and supervisor. And those people uh, became unpopular. They were recalled by a common vote. Everything was democratic. And suddenly... Uh, people who had never had a say in anything had a say in everything about their lives. The other thing is Parenti's video, and I've shared this so many times that I think it's called Communism Did Work. What he says at the beginning of that video is incredibly important, is th that you need to remember what was in place before the revolution. You know, what was Cuba like uh, before Fidel took power? Uh, it was an absolutely corrupt military dictatorship owned by the United States and organized crime. Uh, all of the countries that ended up becoming part of the Soviet Union were in one way or another oppressive and poverty ridden and corrupt. Uh, China was essentially feudal and and these were huge obstacles to overcome. It, it wasn't like, you know, they waved a magic wand and everything was going to be great. Literacy in Venezuela increased like a thousand percent. Infant mortality was cut by 900 percent or something. These kind of achievements are never, ever talked about in the West ever. People act as if revolutions fell from the sky. They were reactions to for populations that had nothing left to lose. They were desperate. And so they took power themselves. Um, the imperialist West learned from those revolutions, though, how to uh, decentralize power there's no winter palace you can storm anymore and take power. You know, where is the seat of power in the United States? You know, Silicon Valley, maybe. I don't know. Langley, Virginia. I don't know. But there it it, it has be that was that was a corrective 
historical corrective that Western capital understood had to be made to stop the revolution from spreading. You know, Ronald Reagan sent money to the Contras illegally because he didn't want those, you know, uh, Sandinista government to spread communist virus north toward the southern border of the United States. God forbid. Um, this is this is the thing that I think has to be understood. Yes, there were massive mistakes. Yes, there were problems. Yes, all kinds of things that, you know, I mean, I think the Soviet Union made a huge error with their reaction to Wilhelm Reich and psychoanalysis in general. I think what happened to aesthetics in at least under Stalin, and I tend to not want to criticize Stalin, but I think it became a problem. The beginning of the revolution, 1920, 1990, 1922, the Soviet Union led the world in film and architecture and paint. I mean, it was a huge outpouring. It was an aesthetic renaissance, but it did deteriorate. There's no question about it. Um, but, but what does the West have, you know, there, it, the United States leads the world in numbers of people imprisoned, both real and per capita, and has some of the worst prison conditions in the world, and some of the, you know, an absolutely racist judicial system, criminal justice system, that is appalling. Um, again, worst in the world, but, but that's not how it's portrayed. That's not how Hollywood portrays it. Okay. Corey and Hiroyuki, final thoughts we'll get to? Well, I don't know. I just wanted to say, too, I think it has to be understood, this whole idea that you will own nothing. People already own nothing. The majority of people own nothing, right? Like, really, your actions are your only belongings in this world. I mean, maybe decades ago, people owned their homes and owned their cars and owned things, right? But that hasn't been true for most people for ages. I mean, in Canada, we're the most debt-ridden country in the world. I think people understand it, but don't want to accept it or don't want to believe it or believe um, something different, like a fantasy, a myth, an illusion, right? Where we own our houses and we own our cars and that, but they're all, it's all debt right? Hundreds of thousands, ten, even the education, right? The, the debt that um, people own, the tuition that, I mean, we're talking tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. So this idea that, oh, we're, you'll own nothing. We already own nothing, you know, and even people that own your house, guess what? The state can come and take it, right? Whenever, whenever they want to do a project, like it, you, you, you don't own anything now. If you go in to buy a new car, they're not going to sell you a new car. You couldn't put down cash money and buy the car. They don't, the guy who's the car salesman doesn't make any, any money on that. They're there not to sell you a car, but to sell you a deal um, that will put you in debt with high interest rates for the next 20 years. That's how that stuff works. Yeah, absolutely true. Hiroyuki? I think it's important to um, uh, point out that the um, um, capitalism is not really a, uh, 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 form of uh, uh, politics. It's not just the government. Um, it's it's the social formation. It's the whole thing, how it's structured and how we are conditioned, how we relate to each other. And uh, we can say the same exact thing about communism. 
And uh, if we focus, if we focus on form of government and talk about, you know, um, yes, which know. form you pick, it doesn't really make much of a difference because in the West we have, uh, you know, social democracy on the left hand, and we have far right on the uh, right hand, and uh, it's all in the capitalism. So. You know, it's it's really uh, uh, we're talking about how we relate to each other and uh, how the social institutions are formed. And uh, if they are working for the interests of the people, uh, it's that's very different from uh, working for the uh, capitalists. And uh, in the West, we have this situation in which all um, uh, institutions that are associated with socialism, they are operating under capitalist ideology. So yeah. Yeah. it does make sense that those people who are not familiar with the idea of communism, they would think that socialism is bad because, you know, that's what they do. They, the government would impose ideas on you and uh, they would take things from you and uh, but it's not that you know the, well, the, but the other thing is that 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 the people who testify all the time about the evils of communism in the west are the offspring of the the gentry and the aristocracy that the state did take their fucking property from them rightly so uh because they own massive plantations and stuff and they go see how horrible my grandmother cried when the state came and reappropriated our land. Yeah, well, you know, welcome to the revolution. Um, but okay, I I have children roaming the house here, um, becoming increasingly noisy. So um, any final, final thoughts? And I'll leave you with my favorite joke. It's Petey the Polar Bear. Petey the Polar Bear goes to his mother one day and says, Mom, is yes, Petey, uh, have we always been polar bears in our family? The mother says, yes, my mother was a polar bear, my father was a polar bear, my grandparents were polar bears, my great-grandparents polar bears, yeah. Um, but go ask your father. And so Petey finds his father and says, Dad, yes, Petey, have we always been polar bears? Well, my father and his father's father, father's father's father, were all polar bears. My mother, grandma, great great grandma, polar bears, aunts, uncle, everybody was a polar bear, yes. But why do you ask? Petey says, because I'm fucking cold. <laughs> That's it, guys. Um, number 100 next time. Uh, right. Uh, thank you, Hiroyuki Johan, Hori, and Varun, and uh, this to Jack Littman also, who puts it up on SoundCloud. A lot of the links will be on SoundCloud. I really hope people um, <clears throat> will read the links. If you want to donate, you can do it through PayPal on my blog page or through Stripe. You can donate via Substack. <laughs> Uh, however, but we don't monetize anything. There's no, you know, paid subscription or paywall or anything because I don't believe in it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you.